Lord, thank you for bringing us together by your grace under the umbrella of the gospel that saves. Lord, use me for your honor and for your glory. Be with me, be with your people. Speak through me, through your word, through your perfect word, and be with your people. Give them hearts ready to receive, eyes open, and and ears open as well. Let them be convicted, but also challenged, Lord, and, and uplifted this evening. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So James, chapter 2, <clears throat> what is faith? So if you're taking notes, you can write down, or if you're taking mental notes, what is faith? It's a word that we hear often, especially as Christians. We hear faith very often. Webster's, and I love going to Webster's, define faith as a strong belief or trust in someone or something. A strong belief or trust in someone or something. John Lennon, if you don't know, he was a member of the Beatles, described faith this way. I believe in everything until it's disproved. So I believe in fairies, the myths, dragons, it all exists, even if it's in your mind. Who's to say that dreams and nightmares aren't as real as the here and now? That's a weird way to define faith. Uh, The famous singer, Frank Sinatra, understood faith like this, I believe in you and me. I'm like Bertrand Russell or Albert Einstein, and that I have respect for life in any form. I believe in nature and the birds and the sky and everything I can see, or there's real evidence for. If those things are what you define by God, then I believe in God. But I don't believe in a personal God to whom I look for comfort. I'm not unmindful of man's seeming need for faith. I'm for anything that gets you through the night, be it prayer, tranquilizers, or a bottle of Jack Daniels. Now, people have all kinds of ideas and and theories about what faith is. Uh, Some people have seemed to equate faith with positive thinking or wishful thinking. You know, there's, you know, people that are like that in your life, right? That they're very optimistic about What's going to happen in the future? They're very optimistic about their faith. They believe that everything's going to turn out for the better, ultimately. Others have seemed to think that faith is a set of beliefs, while others think that faith is living with uncertainty, as if something were true, even though we might not really think that it is. Some think that faith is as individual as, as, individual as each person, meaning However one defines faith, then that's the definition of faith. Now, no matter how one defines faith, what their idea of faith is, I think everyone can agree that we use faith every day. We use faith every single day. We have faith that our alarm clock will wake us up in the morning. For some, it succeeds. For some, it fails. We have faith that our car will start. We have faith in others that when we drive, they won't hit us. 
people who fly on airplanes, especially me like I did, I had to have faith in our pilot that he would land me at the destination safely. Parents have faith in their children that they will do their homework until they get their report card. Kids have faith in their parents that their parents will provide food and shelter for them. Even you at this very moment, you are using faith. You're using faith um, by sitting down. You have faith that your chair will keep you sitting down and, and, and it will not uh, break on you. The pen that some of you are using will not run out of ink. Some of you are having, even having faith that I will get you out of here by 8 o'clock. We all use faith every single day. But there is one faith that trumps all other faiths. There's one faith that is actually commanded to have. There's one faith that actually matters, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, we heard on Sunday, wonderful message. The ultimate sin itself is not placing your faith in Jesus Christ. We know that before the foundation of the world, God chose a particular people. That particular people would be called the elect, uh, the called out ones, the church, The Father gave to the Son these particular people as love gifts to where in the fullness of time he would come and he would rescue his people. God creates man. Man rebels, separating himself and the rest of mankind from God. And it's there when the most amazing thing happens. The eternal Son of God becomes like the rest of his creation. That's amazing. I don't don't know if you ever thought about that when it comes to the gospel, how the eternal Son of God becomes like his creation. And then he comes and dwells with his creation. Jesus comes and lives for his people. He comes and dies for his people. Then he rises from the dead for his people. He ascended to heaven, where now he sits at the right hand of the Father, putting all enemies under his feet, making intercession for his very own. And friends, if you place your faith in in Christ, if you believe that message, then you will be saved. That's great news. We all should have one big amen after that. That is great news. That is the gospel. You will no longer be separated from God, but you will be reconciled back to God. That's wonderful news. That's the greatest news one could ever hear. That's that's powerful, life-changing news, isn't it? I mean, if one accepts, if one places their faith in that, then shouldn't their life be a reflection of that great news that they have placed their faith in? You know, we get, when we graduate high school, or maybe some of us have graduated college, our lives change forever because of that great news of getting that diploma. However, it's different when it comes to the gospel. And it's different when it comes to Christianity. Sadly, many lives aren't transformed. Many Christians' lives aren't changed because of that great truth. And that's our topic for this evening. Dead faith. Dead faith. Through our study through the epistle of James, we have been given great wisdom, such as in chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously, without reproach, and it will be given to him. Or like when James said, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We all need to be reminded of that. 
but we've also been faced to or forced to examine ourselves and look at ourselves in light of what the Bible says about who we are. We were forced to look at that perfect mirror by verses like this in verse 22 of chapter 1, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Last week, we were given more great wisdom from James, learning that we should show no favoritism, no partiality, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, today we are forced once again to look at that perfect mirror. We are forced once again to examine who we are in the faith and for us to ask ourselves, do we, who profess faith in Christ, do we have dead faith? So this evening I have two points I would like for you to consider. Number one, false faith. False faith. And number two, demonic faith. Demonic faith. Now, number one, if you say, I'm going to say that very slowly, false faith, because if you say it too fast, it's false faith. So, and, and if you say it too, too fastly, then it will, it will be something different. So, number one, false faith, and number two, demonic faith. And if you are in James chapter two, will you please stand for the reading of the word? We'll be reading verses 14 through 19. Actually, we'll be reading verses 14 through 20. No, 14 to 19, yeah. <clears throat> what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, Without giving them needs, things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you will do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You may be seated. At jump, and at first reading, you can tell that you're going to be half the force to, to look at yourself. Because this passage in James has been one that has convicted me myself. And I pray that it does for you as well. Let's look at the first point, false faith. False faith. And in our verses this evening, we will see that there are two aspects of false faith. There are two aspects of false faith. The first aspect is empty profession. The first aspect of false faith is empty profession. And the second aspect is empty compassion. So two aspects. Empty profession. And the second is empty compassion. Empty compassion. Let's first look at the first aspect. Empty profession. Look again at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith 
save him. Now, the key word in this verse is that. That. Can that faith save him? Well, what type of faith is James talking about? The faith that he's talking about is a faith that's with no action. It's a faith with no action. Women, oh, we, live in a, we live in a day and age where we want talk to be backed up by action. Do we not? Uh, we uh, Women tell their boyfriends or husbands, if you love me, you better show me. And vice versa. We tell our children, if you say you respect me, then show it. Obey me. Obey what I say. We as Americans want our president to show us what he can do when, if he took office, rather than just telling us what he can do if he took office. Now, whether it's the politicians whom we vote for, the cars we drive, the services we purchase, we want results, not just claims and promises. We've even made up all kinds of catchphrases to express our need to see words put into action. You might have heard of some of these. Talk is cheap. Trust, but verify. Don't just talk the talk. Walk the walk. Put your money where your mouth is. Now, sometimes these phrases have even religious undertones. Practice what you preach. The road to hell is paid with good intentions. So we understand almost inherently that actions speak louder than words. And that's the whole point of this passage. Faith with no action is dead faith. Faith with no action is dead faith. And that is why James proposes the question to his readers in verse 14. Look again. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? He even says at the beginning of the verse, what good is it? Meaning, what's the point of having faith when your life is not a reflection of that faith? These people whom James is writing to were Jewish Christians. They came from a background of Judaism, which is basically legalism. Meaning, by keeping the whole law, you will be justified before God. Their system was a works-based system. But when they heard the preaching of the gospel, they understood that justification was not by works of the law, but by faith alone, in Christ alone, in Christ's perfect law-keeping. So they converted from their Judaism, their perfect law-keeping, to now Christianity, faith alone, in Christ alone. So they knew that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's a truth that I will die defending. And many have died defending. However, what they failed to realize, and what James is correcting them in, is true saving faith doesn't stay alone. True regenerate Christian lives are marked out by you putting your faith into practice. Yes, we are saved by faith alone. But that faith in your Christian life is never alone. It's always backed up by action, by works, by fruit, by deeds. James reiterates the point, <clears throat> that point many times in this passage. For example, in verse 17, so also faith by itself, it, 
if it does not have works, is dead. Brothers and sisters, the true evidence of your salvation is what you do rather than what you say. True salvation is demonstrated by a changed behavior. That their redemption will bear fruit and it will be evident to those who are truly saved by God. Friends, James is not inventing some new doctrine or telling us something that we haven't heard before. We see this truth at the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then drop down to verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? And get what he says here in verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is, God is from these stones to, able to raise children to Abraham. And get this. And I think this is probably the most shocking thing in the whole verse. Even now, the axe is laid root to the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice how John the Baptist doesn't tell these Pharisees and Sadducees that mere profession of sin will be good enough. Being baptized, then you're straight. No, it had to be occupied by a changed behavior. And that's why he tells them to bring forth fruits and works with actions consistent with repentance. Your baptism doesn't save you. Faith alone in Christ alone will save you. But that faith, like I said, will not be alone in your Christian life. But it will be accompanied by works, by good deeds, by good fruit. Mm. Friends, that's one of the marks of true repentance. A changed life. You don't repent from something, go the next week, and then commit the same sin over again. You do a 180. You don't go back to that old vomit. You press forward. You continue to look at the cross. You continue to pray that the Holy Spirit will sanctify you. He even tells them that the tree, that a tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down. Now, this has also some, it points to Israel being cut down because of their rebellion and because of them not bearing good fruit. But also, this refers to those who are of the faith. Because salvation is not demonstrated by profession and by ancestry. But salvation is demonstrated by bearing good fruit. It doesn't matter if your mama was saved. Or like me when I was younger, living my salvation through my father. Salvation is demonstrated by bearing good fruit. If your faith is merely lip service, with no holy and righteous living, then friends, you have a false faith. If your faith is merely lip service with no holy and righteous living, then you have a false faith. Your faith may seem to be alive and active by the things that you say, but your words are not backed up by action, and your faith is dead. James, as he does often in this epistle, 
repeats the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus spoke often about the nature of true saving faith and false faith. Our Lord spoke about this in the parable of the soils. He spoke about it and was alluding to it in part in the parable of the wheat and the tares. He spoke about this in John 15 when he talked about the abiding and non-abiding branches. This is a common issue in the ministry of our Lord. Faith without works is dead. Profession with no works is false faith. Friends, faith is like calories. You can't see calories. You can see what's on your plate, but as much as you try to calculate how much that chicken breast or that white rice is and and the macros and nutrients that goes in there, you're never going to know how much calories you're really eating. But you can see its results by the way you look. Very much like faith in Christ. You can't see faith. We can't see that you believe in Christ. However, we can see the results of your faith. Brothers and sisters, simple question. Do you look like a Christian this morning or this evening? Now, understand that looks can be deceiving. You can be a a good saint today and you can be a devil tomorrow. I totally understand that. But then you're in the same boat as someone who has faith but no changed life. You're not really true. You're not real. And you will be cut off. I know many Christians who profess faith in Christ, but you wouldn't even tell by the way the life that they live. You know people like that. But you can tell that they're a Raider fan. You can tell that they really love their Dodgers or Yankees. You can tell that they are a 49er for life. But when it comes to Christ, the extent of their relationship is a simple belief, but no action, no transformed life. It's funny how many people will put more faith in a football, basketball, baseball team and show who they are and represent who they are, but they won't do that when it comes to Christ. Imagine you falling in love with a girl. Let me give you another analogy. Imagine you falling in love with a girl. For ladies, uh, Arnold, look what you brought in, a butterfly. (sighs) Is that a moth? Watch your clothes. Okay, watch your clothes. But imagine you falling in love with a girl. Uh, or um, ladies, you falling in love with a man, and you love everything about that person's physical appearance. You love the hair. Men, you love the makeup. You love it when she wears glasses. You love all the things. You love who she is and the things that she can potentially do for your life. And imagine you guys getting together and you're going on that first date. You're a nervous wreck. You guys are having dinner, and you tell her, or you tell him, I really like you. Matter of fact, I think I'm in love with you. Now, there's just one problem. If we get together in our relationship, I don't want you to say one word. Don't even say one word. I don't need your opinion. I can figure things out for myself. Uh, For as long as I'm with you, just keep silent. And be there when I need you. When I call, listen, please listen to me. If I want to see other people, then don't worry, because I'll be back. Don't worry. 
Friends, sadly, that's how many Christians' faith is when it comes to Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I believe in you. You're my get-out-of-hell-free pass. Be there when I need you. If I sin, don't worry. I'll be back Easter service or Christmas service. Just don't tell me what to do. Don't give me your opinion. Beloved, that's false faith. That's false faith. R.C. Sproul once said, the question is not, do you profess faith? It's, do you possess it? Not, is, not do you profess faith, but do you possess faith? Is your faith real and active and alive? Has faith in Christ changed you? Has it transformed everything that you used to be, slowly conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ? Friends, don't deceive yourself, as James says many times in this epistle. Work out your salvation. Work out your faith. Many who believe that just a profession of faith, that's, and that's all you need, fall into what is known as easy believism, which is the belief that saving faith doesn't have to produce good works. That's what many Christians believe today. And that's what James has in mind in verse 14. And that is why he asked the question in verse 14, can that type of faith save you? What do you think? No. Can't save you. That's dead faith. Dead faith is all lip service, but no lifestyle. It's a profession of faith that you do not practice because you do not possess it. It's like a married man who loves his wife, but doesn't live with her. Doesn't do things for her. Doesn't show her his love and appreciation the most he'll do is say, I love you, or I'm married to her. Would we see that husband as a true, genuine husband? We wouldn't. He wouldn't be a true husband. Now, some of you might say, well, don't judge him. Don't judge that husband. And don't judge Christians. You don't know their heart. If they say they have faith, they have faith. I hate when people say that. Don't judge your heart. Don't judge my heart. You see, the problem with saying things like that is the way you live reflects what's in your heart. What's in your heart overflows into your life. Friends, ask yourself this evening, does my life back up what I believe? Does my life back up what I believe? Am I doing, obeying, and living God's word? Or am I merely professing to say I believe in God's word, but never put any action? Empty profession is a false profession of faith. Now let's look at the second aspect of false faith, and that is empty compassion. James gives us an analogy in verse 15 and in 16. If you, look, if you look there, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James uses the illustration of a brother or sister in Christ coming to church. It's cold outside and this person does not have enough clothing to stay warm, doesn't have enough food. Someone in the church shakes their hand and says, have a nice day. Stay warm. May God be with you. Have a good dinner. 
Well, for one, that's messed up. <laughs> and, and for two, that's just not right. Then that person out the door, sending that person out the door with no help for his needs or her needs. James asks, what good is that? What are you doing? Why are you wasting your time? What good is it to see a person in need knowing that you have plenty of resources that will help them instead? You say, may God's grace be with you. What good is that? Friends, words may ease the soul, but clothes are what keep the body warm. And food is what keeps the stomach full. If someone is telling you about things that they are lacking, or if you see someone that is lacking in something, how much of a blessing would it be if you supplied what they are in need of? That you will help them in any area that you can. When people invite you over to your house, if you have leftover food or maybe clothes that you don't use, give it away. You don't need it. Anytime Joe comes over to my house, he goes home with a bag full of food because I don't need it. Not to say that he's in need, but hey, I can't eat all this food. Let me spread it out. Spread the wealth. They will be greatly blessed by that. Friends, just as false faith with no works is useless and unable to save, false compassion is of no use to a person who needs real compassion. Just as words without deeds doesn't save, words, doesn't, words without deeds doesn't save, people who show no compassion don't warm the, don't warm the body and don't feed the hungry. And James is emphasizing this point on compassion because true compassion is a mark of true generation. Real compassion, showing compassion to your fellow brother and sister is a mark that you are saved. Remember in chapter 1, James says one of the marks of true religion is visiting and showing compassion to widows and orphans? That's the same thing here. We read in 1 John 3.14, if we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Friends, compassion with no action is no compassion at all. And I know some of you, I know some of you come up from hard backgrounds and hard upbringings. I understand that. And it's difficult for some of you to show compassion. I truly get that. But beloved, understand that your bad upbringing is just another reason for you to praise God for his grace and his mercy, for saving you in spite of that. Now live a life that shows compassion, the same compassion that you didn't have when you were younger. Show that compassion to others and be a model of what it means to be a Christian. Let others see that your life is a reflection of the life that you have now in Christ, not the life that you had when you were once a child. Brothers and sisters, let us be here for one another when we need each other. And I know many of you already do that. And I thank God for many of you. We as believers have an obligation to meet each other in times of need. Paul tells the Galatians in 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. But also, Jesus says in Matthew 25, regarding the sheep and the goats, verse 31, I'm going to read the whole thing. 
when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now just envision this in your head. He will put the sheep on his right and he will put the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since, since the creation of the world. Let me stop there. That is amazing. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. But then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison and you did not look after me. And these people, these religious people are, have one more thing to say. But, but, but Jesus, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? When, Jesus, they're begging for Jesus to say, when did we not help you? Again, he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will to eternal life. Friends, not helping others in need, especially those who are of the faith, has serious consequences. Very serious consequences. Take that in consideration next time you pass by a homeless person and you have a dollar in your pocket that you do not need. I don't believe that what Oprah Riffery said when she said, well, don't give them money. You're just encouraging them not to have a job. I don't believe that one bit. Some of them actually need that money. Some of them, that's their only source of income for months. Don't just talk like you care. Actually show that you care. Not acting upon what you believe shows that you don't really believe what you say in the first place. Ask yourselves, brothers and sisters, is there anyone in my life that I know that's in need? Is there anyone in my life that I know is lacking in certain areas? If you could think of a few, reach out to them. Create a list of people and call them up. Visit their homes. Show them what a true Christian looks like. Now, James will attack another pillar of dead faith. And that is the foolish notion that orthodox belief without deeds is enough to save. Let's look at the second point and the final point, which is demonic faith. Demonic faith. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. 
Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, every Jew at James' time knew the Shema. Every single one of them. The Shema is one of the only two prayers that are commanded in the Torah. It's a fixed prayer in Judaism. And the prayer will go something like this, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with your, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by them and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as the frontlets behind your eyes. You shall write them on the doorsteps of your house and on your gates. Now that's partially quoted here in verse 9. The Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 stood as a standard of statement of faith for the one true God. And many Jews held that verse in reverence and memorized it and taught it to their children. And James here is saying, that is wonderful that you believe that there is one true God. Let me give you an applause. Congratulations. You believe that there is one true God, like many of us. There is one true God. There is one God. Not Allah. You're a monotheist, though. And I have bad news for you. The demons are monotheists as well. Friends, that's a reflection of a large majority of Christians today. Many Christians approach God the way demons approach God. Listen to what I'm saying here. I believe that there is one God. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. But that's where it stops. And James is saying, if that's you, you are like a demon. You are just like a demon. Friends, the devil and demons are better theologians than some seminary professors and Bible students and pastors. If demons were to get together and write a book on Christology, on Jesus Christ, it would be more clear and they would get more right than half of the junk that's on bookshelves right now. Because when they talk about Jesus, they actually get it right. Let me give you an example if you don't believe me. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake, two men were possessed by demons, met him. They came out of the tombs and were so violent that one of that. No one could go through that area. Verse 29, the demons, they began screaming at him. Why are you interfering with us? And get what they say, son of God. Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? These demons were referring to Jesus, referred to Jesus as son of God. What is that? Points to him being God, points to his deity, points to his majesty, points to his position. Let me give you another one, just in case you don't believe me. Mark, nine, Mark 3, 9 through 12 says, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And, and here it is. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they don't run away. 
they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Hmm. Those unclean spirits are demons. They're demons. And it says they fell down before him and acknowledged Jesus as God. Friends, ask yourself this evening, do I have demonic faith? Is my faith in Jesus just a mere belief that he is God? Do I profess that he is the one only true God? Do I believe that he's only just the son of God and that's it? You know that there are many who can quote scripture better than me, who know doctrine better than me, who can run theological raps around anyone whom they come across. Yet they aren't practicing what they believe. There is a disconnect from what they know inside their head to what they express in their life. Their head knowledge does not make its way out to their actual living life. There are some Christians who can get away, who can take a test, who can take a theological test, and many of you can, and you can get 100% on it. 100%. You can nail every single question, but fail in a practical living test. Because it's not about fill in the blank here. It's not about fill in the bubble here. It's about fill in the life. It's not about passing a test. You will not be judged by the amount of truth that's in your head, but the amount of truth that you live by. Friends, ask yourselves, do these doctrines change your life? Does doctrine and theology change your life? Or does all your theological knowledge, or does, does all your theological knowledge express itself out in a way you live? Friends, if you, have, you can have great knowledge of Jesus, you can know who Jesus is, but you can have no affection for Jesus. You can know Jesus, but not love Jesus. Spurgeon once said, it will not save me to know that Christ is a savior, but it will save me to trust him to be my savior. The difference is one agrees that Jesus is a savior and the other lives a life changed because Jesus is his savior. This demonic faith can also be called academic faith. Academic faith. And academic faith is all information, but no transformation. And sadly, I see this in our very own reform camp. I see many reformed Christians who love Calvinism, who stand on the doctrines of grace, as do I and many of you, but fail to understand that those truths are only to humble you, not to puff you up. They are meant for us to live a life that is shaped by the truth of the sovereignty of God and be in awe of the glory of God. Friends, just because you're reformed, just because you go to a reformed church doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean one thing. Give me an inconsistent Arminian who shows his faith and bears fruit over a know-it-all Calvinist who thinks he knows everything about theology but does nothing with it. One of the things I admire so much about the, about the people of our great lineage, you know, Edwards, Calvin, Owen, Sib, Spurgeon, is not the theological genius of these men, but their religious devotion and the spirituality of these men. <clears throat> how they, how their head knowledge 
transformed into their heart. How what they knew in their head transformed their heart and it overflowed in their living. Just all one big circle, all one big connection. There's no disconnect. What am I saying? Their theology and their doxology was never disconnected from one another. It was always in harmony. It was always in unity. And that's true saving faith. That's true faith. Knowing the truth. And like what Pastor said, being shaped by the truth. Knowing Jesus as a Savior and trusting in him to be my Savior. Now living a life in light of him being my Savior. Some Christians are so quick to call themselves Christians because they say, I have faith in Jesus Christ, but never come to church. Never come to prayer. Never go out when it's time to evangelize. Never once share the gospel with a friend or a stranger. Never read their Bible. Never mortify the flesh. Never bear fruit. Friends, that's a lukewarm Christian. Is that you? And if it is, check yourself. And ask for mercy and grace. Ask for the Holy Spirit to sanctify you in those areas. In Revelation, those Christians, those lukewarm Christians are the ones whom God will spit out of his mouth. Some might say, well, I have faith. And that's good enough. This whole time you've been preaching, I haven't been listening because I have faith. I know what Paul says in Romans. If you believe in your mouth, you will have, if you believe in your heart you, and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. I know. Well, then you're the one that's arguing with James in chapter, in verse 18. Take a look, if you will. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You're arguing with James. And that's a bad thing. When you're arguing with the people in the Bible, James is imagining a question to rise by some sort of antagonist. And this antagonist will say, well, I have faith, you have works. Let's see which one is better. James accepts the challenge, and he issues a challenge right back. Very slick, I might add. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James is saying, you think your faith is real and active? Okay, prove it. Prove it. Prove to me that you have faith in Christ. And friends, it can't be done. Why can't it be done? Because faith is invisible. It's invisible. That is why James says, I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you how God has changed my life and has detached me from everything that I used to be by what I do, how I live, rather than what I say and what I preach. So, brothers and sisters, next time a Christian tells you, I believe in Jesus Christ, can you do this for me? One thing for me, please. Ask them, who in your life are you currently discipling? Who in the past three months have you led to the Lord? Does God tend to use you as a change agent in people's lives? Show me what it means to be a Christian. Show me what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. And take those three questions and apply them to your life as well. I encourage you to do that. In closing, in these three, 13 verses, 
in the epistle of James, we once again are forced to look into our lives and see where we are lacking at. And friends, looking at yourself in the mirror is a good thing. It's a very good thing. Because no examination leads to deceptive examination. Because we can all deceive ourselves, and we do oh so often. Ask yourself, am I really of the faith? Am I producing good works? Am I producing good deeds? Am I living the word out? Am I not only talking the talk, but am I walking the walk as well? Can others visibly see the transformation that has happened in my life since Jesus has saved me? Or is my faith in Christ merely intellectual and not actual? Ask yourself, am I loving others more than I love myself? And that's a difficult thing to, difficult thing to do. It's a difficult thing to help others who are in need and love others more than yourself. But more so the former, because what does that require? The two things that you value the most in this world your time, and your money. Forget all those things. Help people who are in need. If you know that they are lacking in food or in clothes, go out and buy them something. If it's not too much of a hurt for you. Friends, I pray, and if you don't get anything out of this, hear these last words. I pray that you don't take this message lightly. Please don't take this lightly. Take the warnings that James presents to us very, very seriously. Because I don't want none of you to deceive yourself. I genuinely don't. Don't leave here and only think about this thing tonight or the next week or the next month. But continue to come back to the question, am I producing good thing, good deeds, and am I bearing good fruit? Am I showing evidence of my faith? And if you're not, then pray. Pray all night if you have to. Today we talked about what is false faith. Next week we will see what true saving faith is.